This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello, and thanks for joining us for your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. This week, as we approach Father's Day in the UK on Sunday the 20th of June, we're looking at how the father of evolution enjoyed work and family life at his home. Charles Darwin lived at Down House in Kent for 40 years until his death in 1882 at the age of 73. In that time, he conceived his theory of natural selection and also became the father to 10 children. Joining us to discuss family life with the Darwins is Dr. Tessa Kilgariff, who is Curator of Collections and Interiors at English Heritage and is also based at Down House. Hello. Hello. Tessa, thanks for coming on. We've said that Charles Darwin lived at Down House in Kent for 40 years, but can you tell us when and also why did the family choose to move there? So Charles and his wife, Emma, moved to Down in September 1842, and they were coming from a quite a bustling part of London. They actually had a house on Upper Gower Street that they rented near the British Museum, and they chose Down primarily because they needed somewhere larger and more comfortable to host and care for their growing brood of children. And because Charles viewed Down with its really rural position, very secluded, as the ideal environment with the peace and the privacy that he needed to pursue his scientific work and work on his theory of evolution. Of course. And in a letter to his sister, Charles actually said that Down was at the extreme verge of the world, and that's what he liked about it. Right. Yeah, it's a very, really nice place, actually, down some quite winding lanes in places, but also these days very near the M25, so quite easy to get to. (laughs) But um, when the family moved there, how big was the family? Because obviously they're in London up until this point. Yes. So when they first get there, they actually only have two children. So they have William, who is three years old, and they have baby Annie, who is just one. But shortly after they arrived at Down, Emma gave birth to their third child, who was a daughter called Mary. Very sadly, Mary died just a few weeks later when she was 23 days old. Right. We'll talk a bit more about some of the other children and when they appear on the scene. But um, also at this point, can you explain where Charles is in his career as a naturalist? Yes, absolutely. By 1842 this year, he's started to secure quite a strong reputation in the scientific world. So if we think about sort of Darwin's career, by now he's returned from his great voyage, the voyage on HMS Beagle, and he's been back for about six years. And during that voyage, which actually lasted for a long time, it was a five year long voyage, he had been to all sorts of different places. He'd been to Rio de Janeiro, to the Falkland Islands, to Patagonia, to the Galapagos Islands, to Australia, New Zealand, so, and many, many others. And this was the time when he had been sort of filling up his satchel with all his specimens, making his copious notes and his drawings, and actually shipping a lot of that material back, those bone and rock and plant specimens, mm. back to Cambridge. And also studying, I think, quite keenly the um, Galapagos Islands, which helped influence his um, development of his theory of evolution by natural selection. Yes, absolutely. I mean, really... This Beagle voyage is the most extraordinary time of his career and it actually just comes to entirely determine his life's work and to a variety of different strands of his work as um, a naturalist, a geologist, and then eventually 
to leading to his groundbreaking ideas on the transmutation of the species that became his theory of evolution. Yes, and it's quite interesting that he becomes the father of evolution at the same time that he's becoming a father to quite a growing brood um, in, in the way that his <laughs> yeah. family life and his theoretical ideas develop together in the same place at Down House, which is quite interesting. Definitely. There's this amazing kind of intertwinedness between Darwin's professional life as a scientist and his, his life as a father. So let's talk about those children then that were born at Down. We've talked about three already and you've mentioned that um, one little girl has died, unfortunately. Can you tell us about the other children who were born at Down House? Yes, absolutely. So there are seven more children who are born at Down. Um, the Darwins have 10 children overall. The seven who were born at Down were Etty, George, Elizabeth, Francis, Leonard, Horace and little Charles, the final child. Was there just the one mortality then? Very sadly, no. The answer to that, as you said, baby Mary, um, when they first moved to Down. But Charles was really, really deeply affected by the death of his first daughter, Annie. She died at the age of 10 in 1851. And Charles and Emma were completely devastated by the loss of Annie. She probably died of tuberculosis. And Charles wrote really movingly a kind of heartfelt memorial to her and when he talks about her smile how her eyes shined brightly how she defied the world in her joyousness and actually the death of Annie really affected Darwin for the rest of his life mm. and very sadly they did actually have a third and final loss so when Emma was 48 years old she gave birth to her 10th and last child the little Charles Charles Waring died of scarlet fever after just 18 months Right. That's quite a lot of um, suffering to go through then, really, isn't it? That's Yeah, yeah. That's, that's terrible. Let's try and concentrate then on some brighter moments then in, in the lives of the Darwins at Down House. Can you describe then a typical day in the Darwin household? Yes, absolutely. One of the amazing things about Down is that we retain so much of the personal possessions of the family. So actually, we have this really vivid idea of what life was like for the children and for Charles and Emma. Um, so Darwin would wake up pretty early around 7am, and he would go out immediately for a walk. He would then take his breakfast alone and work between sort of 8 and 9.30. And then he would go off to the drawing room to read his own letters and read the family letters around. So imagine sort of different members of the family crowding around him to find out what was happening with the cousins and what was happening with their aunts and uncles. Then Darwin would go back to his study uh, before another walk around the sand walk, which was what he called his kind of special thinking path, which is at the end of the garden at Down. Mm -hmm. And he would probably take one of the children with him on that walk as well. Okay. Um, and probably a dog as well. <laughs> yes. Did they have lots of pets? Yes, they had many, many dogs during their time at Down, but also they had a horse, they had some pigs, and they also had various other creatures and critters that the children kept. But Darwin's favourite dog was a little terrier called Polly. And he was a bit of a pigeon fancier, wasn't he? He collected pigeons and sort of studied them and also studied them after they'd uh, deceased. Yes, absolutely. He really wanted to get into um, fancy pigeons, which was a popular sort of Victorian pastime. 
But he was studying them because he wanted to establish the common descent of all varieties of these fancy pigeons from the common African rock dove. So perhaps not what other pigeon fanciers were kind of after, but he would study their plumage and he would get the children to help out with feeding and looking after the sort of fantails and pooters and other types of pigeon. And he would actually dissect and boil up the birds so that he could preserve and study their skeletons. And the cook hated this because he did it in her kitchen and uh, eventually Darwin was forced to farm that work out because the family would no longer accept him stinking out the kitchen with the smell of pigeon. (laughs) Yes, I can imagine. Did any of the children get involved in these experiments, particularly with the uh, pigeons? Yes, so Etty was the one who was really sort of by her father's side feeding them. But other members of the Darwin family were you know, expected to help out with various small and large tasks um, to do with Darwin's scientific experiments. And some of the children, such as Etty and Francis, actually um, Etty edited lots of his work when she was an adult. And Francis used to co-write a book and some papers with his father and was really kind of his lab assistant as well as his son. Wow. So he had his own research team effectively. Oh, yes. Dan was a sort of a laboratory with a full staff. So how many of the children, so we're talking about seven surviving children. Mm. So how many of those were quite scientific, would you say? So I would say that four of them were probably the ones who took their scientific careers um, the furthest. So I've spoken already about Etty, who becomes this trusted editor to her father. But then we have Francis, who becomes a sort of established scientist and works very, very closely with his father. But also sons George and Horace had scientific careers. Perhaps George becoming the best known. He was a leading geophysicist, um, known particularly for his work on tides, and he actually became a Cambridge University professor. That's fascinating. So, yes, he's passed on his genes in that in that sense, mm. isn't he? And his interest, mm. uh, which is really interesting. That's another area of uh, evolutionary study in itself, isn't it? <laughs> Epigenetics. So, do we have any records of Charles playing with his children as well as teaching them? Yes, we do. We understand that Charles was a pretty good playmate, such that we actually have a story of how one of his children tried to bribe Charles away from his scientific work by offering him a sixpence. Unfortunately, he was turned down. But (laughs) that suggests that actually Charles was quite good fun and that he was a valued sort of member of, of of the playing gang at Down. Also, Charles and Emma did quite quite liberal things in terms of encouraging boisterous play. Charles commissioned a wooden stair slide from one of the local carpenters, um, well, the local carpenter in Down Village, and they had that installed on the stairs. So what they would do is the children would, from the kind of mid-landing, they would scoot down the slide and crash directly into the wall, which presumably <laughs> ended up in lots of bruises and lots of fun. Can we see that there today? Is it still existing? Yeah, yeah, we still have the slide. You can come and see it. Unfortunately, it's not on the stairs and you're not allowed to go down it, but you can come and see the slide, which is on display in the schoolroom at Down. That's fascinating. So there's a schoolroom there. Mm. Uh, okay, so what happened on in that situation then? Was there a, a teacher who turned up every day or...? So like many children of a kind of Victorian country gentleman, as Darwin uh, in many ways was, he ensured that his children could start their education at home. So they actually had a governess and all of the children would be taught 
principally by the governess and also by Emma Darwin, their mother, who oversaw particularly their religious training. Right. Um, so yes, there was a school room down and then the boys were sent to a tutor. And then later when the boys were around 11 years old, they would go to a boarding school. We've covered governesses in a previous episode. Uh, presumably the governess would have lived with the family at the property. Yes. And they had other staff as well, I'm presuming? Yes, quite a lot. I mean, when the children were small, they had many nursemaids and maids in the house, but they also had a butler who Charles used to like to play billiards with. And they had gardeners and quite a large domestic staff, but they actually used to stay with the family for a long time. The Darwins seemed to be quite a agreeable bunch to work for. And so the servants, many of them stayed for their whole lives. And we actually have lots of lovely photographs of the family with their domestic staff. You've said that um, Charles was quite a sort of liberal parent, but you'd expect a Victorian to be a little bit rigid and a bit stiff and a bit of a disciplinarian. Is there any evidence of him being like that at all? Was it completely ahead of his time? (laughs) I don't think I wouldn't I wouldn't say that Darwin was ahead of his time. There's lots of ways in which his kind of Victorian parenting was very conventional. You know, the way in which he took a really great interest in the education of his children, agonized endlessly about what boarding school would be best for them and agonized about their health a lot as well. And those those are two things that are very um, normal for a Victorian parent to concern themselves with. But perhaps the most unusual thing about Charles as a father is that because he was able to pursue his scientific research from home or because he chose to do it from home, he was around a lot and he was able to intertwine those two parts of his life. And, you know, the children would become subjects of study as well as lab assistants sometimes. Um, <laughs> he didn't keep he didn't keep a second home in London. Um, he didn't stay over there very often. And he chose instead to kind of conduct his scientific research often by letter so that he could be at home most of the time. It's something that we'd uh, quite easily identify with today, what with the global health situation as it has been over the last year or so. Parents are now working from home and then, I suppose, having more contact with their children. So um, Charles would probably understand the situation that many parents have been in recently. Yes, definitely. Although I think Charles was very canny in that he was able to essentially run his household in such a way that was really, really conducive to his scientific work. And, you know, his children and all of the domestic staff knew that they needed to respect that. So perhaps other parents aren't quite so lucky in having that kind of freedom to create such an efficient working environment from home. Oh, yes. He was very much helped by his um, cohort of staff to ensure that his schedule could be adhered to. It sounds like his breakfast Mm. uh, routine was certainly very much geared around him and his work and the family revolved around that. Yeah. Well, let's look at the property itself. I've been there. We've been there on the podcast. You can see pictures. You can listen to that episode. And it is a really big property and there's lots of space to walk around. How big was the actual property and the grounds as well? So when they first arrived or when they purchased down, it came with this three-story Georgian house that was basically shaped like a simple box, but it did have an attached kitchen and a service block and 18 acres. So quite substantial amount of or certainly to to our ears a very substantial amount of land Mm. but Charles and Emma immediately felt it needed to be expanded and improved. Okay how did they expand Um, it? So they did four major extensions to the house during those 40 years 
And they started out by expanding the kitchen wing and they added offices and accommodation for their domestic staff. And they also added a schoolroom because they knew they had this growing group of children who needed space for a governess and an extra bedroom. And then it was in 1857 that they decided they didn't have enough space for them all to dine when their Wedgwood cousins from Emma's side used to come and stay. And so they added a new drawing room and a bedroom to free up more space. And then finally, in the 1870s, they added yet another two-story extension. And that was actually partially to make sense for Darwin's son, Francis, the one who I mentioned worked very closely with his father on scientific experiments, Mm. um, because he needed to come and live it down with his newborn son after his wife had very sadly died in childbirth. Yes. So that's the property covered. It's uh, generally gradually expanded over time as the children Mm. grow up. What about the gardens, though, as a place for inspiration for Charles's work? So the gardens are incredibly central to how Charles's scientific work developed. It was really the site of his open air laboratory. He did very, very simple experiments, really, that were about observation. So he would do things like squaring off a plot of lawn and then watching very, very closely over 12 months about which different species of plant survived. And that would contribute to his theory of the survival of the fittest. And he built a greenhouse which you can see still today in the gardens. And he could experiment with tropical specimens, such as insectivorous plants, and investigate his theories about orchid reproduction in there. So it was really an ever-changing space, I think. And Darwin was always thinking of how he could put the garden to kind of new use. He was quite big into Um, worms as well, wasn't he? He did worm experiments. He did worm experiments, um, and that was actually an experiment that he um, did with one of his sons and that was later published. So there were lots and lots of different ways in which he used the garden, but also he used the garden as um, a sort of a thinking place when he would go down to the sandwalk, because so much of the work that Darwin did was really going on inside his mind and he was trying to work out these knotty problems and so he felt like he needed to spend lots of time sort of plotting his way along the thinking path in order to gradually gradually over about 20 years sort of crystallizing his evolutionary theory yes i think a lot of people can identify with that it always helps to go for a walk if you want to sort of clear your head and get some ideas and then maybe come back to the piece of work that you were working on before. Um, it's also good good to get away from the children potentially, isn't it? Yes, definitely. Um, although sometimes they would play tricks on him down at the sandwalk. He used to put a add a stone to a pile of pile of stones so he could see how many laps of the sandwalk he had done. And sometimes the children would steal the stones so he would lose track of how many how many laps he'd done. <laughs> Interesting. So um how important were the gardens to his work then, would you say? I think the gardens were really transformational. I think particularly the work that he did in his observations of the lawn and the work that he did um, on orchid reproduction dependent on insect pollinators in the greenhouse, they were really foundational. Yeah, I think without those gardens then, perhaps he couldn't have come up with all those different ideas because it was his open air laboratory, as you say. And uh, if he was living in uh, London uh, in a flat or something, then you're not really going to probably achieve as much. No, I don't think he would have at all. And he was kind of desperate to get out into the countryside when they were living in London. The evidence in his correspondence is really a lot of him and Emma complaining about how 
it's so densely populated and it's noisy and they only have a tiny strip of garden and he can't have any of the things that he wants and that he could have it down. Mm. You mentioned the children playing tricks on their father there. What other adventures and naughtiness did the grounds offer to the children? Lots of different things. The grounds, they like to sprint through the tall grasses in the nearby fields and play hide and seek. And there was also this big mulberry tree, which remains today. Um, and they like to collect the berries. And they also used to like to go down to um, Great House Meadow, which was a, a meadow just adjacent to the house that they also owned bordered their kitchen garden and it was here that they could go and look at the cows and the horses and their donkey and um, mess around down there with the animals. Did the children play much sport? Because we've covered in a previous episode that there was a tennis court that was designed and put in the gardens. Yes, croquet and tennis were the two sort of big sports that the children liked to play. Also just chasing the dogs, I think, around and around the garden. And also Great House Meadow was used by the villagers of Down for their cricket matches too. So I think the children probably would have gotten involved in the cricket matches. Or probably gone down to watch as Mm. well. Are there any objects related to the children that visitors can see at Down House today? Perhaps some of these sporting objects or other trinkets? Yes, lots and lots of really fun and interesting domestic objects. We've got the young Darwin's scrapbooks, their school books, toys, musical instruments, letters, family portraits, the slide that we mentioned earlier, even the Wedgwood dinner service that the family ate off. And yes, just lots of photographs of the children too. So you get a really vivid idea of what it was like to be a little Darwin at Down. I gather there was also this unique keepsake box that was recently donated to English Heritage. Where did that come from and who did it also belong to? So the keepsake box originally belonged to Charles Darwin's daughter, Annie, the one who I mentioned who very sadly died at the age of 10 in 1851. But when when Annie sadly passed away, the daughter, the box then passed to Annie's younger sister, Henrietta, who we refer to as Etty. And then Etty in 1897, gave that box to her niece, Margaret Keynes. And Margaret added further things to the box, and then it remained with the Keynes family until its donation to English Heritage just recently. So it uh, passed through within the Darwin family and then went out of it sort of a little bit and then came back to the actual property. Yes, exactly. It's kind of come full circle. Yes. And what's what was in it? So it's a it's a red leather box and it's got two drawers and this lid that lifts up to reveal another compartment. And the outside is decorated with these really beautiful gold drawer pulls, which are quite elaborate. And you can tell that it's been much loved and treasured because it's quite it's a little bit, you know, knocked around. There's a few scratches, definite signs of usage. Mm. And it contained personal treasures and souvenirs passed down through through those three Darwin relatives who I mentioned. So letters, locks of hair belonging to the members of the Darwin family, a silk hand- handkerchief that belonged to Charles, which is embroidered with his initials, and also, interestingly, shells collected during Darwin's voyage on HMS Beagle. And his daughter had very carefully labelled all of these shells using scrap paper from one of Darwin's draft manuscripts. Ah, So in some respects, um, the fact that this um, keepsake box has now returned to the property means that uh, the full story of the Beagle voyage in terms of fines has also come full circle because the Beagle voyage is so central to 
Charles's theory of evolution and to have all these shells back in the same property again is, I suppose, quite satisfying for English heritage. Yeah, it's really satisfying. And it's such a unique and intimate object that tells you about kind of, you know, how Victorian children were encouraged to collect and kind of create these little keepsake boxes. And also just this really closely intertwined between his scientific work and his family life. And I hope that the fact that it's been so carefully preserved and cared for over the generations kind of shows you a sense of um, how valuable Darwin's um, descendants understood his legacy to be as well. When was that um, keepsake box handed over to English Heritage then? It was donated back to English Heritage on the 150th anniversary of the publication of his book, The Descent of Man and the Select and Selection in Relation to Sex. And that was back in February of this year. Right. It's good that it's now back at the house. Whereabouts can visitors see it if they come to visit? As I mentioned, it's full of all these very fragile objects, the shells. And in order for us to put it on display without any further deterioration taking place, we need to conserve the box and a few of the items within it just to stabilise any cracks and corrosion and to ensure that it can be on display for future generations. And our plan is to hopefully put it on display later this autumn. Fantastic. Well, having covered all of this, it sounds as though that uh, Downhouse was a pretty good place to grow up for a child and a great place for a father to do his work and also be a work from home dad and nurture his children. What would you say about that? I certainly think so. I think it seems like Charles, Emma and their children were always learning something new. They were always inventing a new game or probably embarking on yet another dirty building project to expand the house for ever more guests. He kind of lived this life of this Victorian country gentleman, really, really conventional in so many ways. And yet a whole time, the first 20 years that he was living it down, he knew that he was about to make this explosive publication where he would basically completely change how humans conceived of their history. So it's this really weird balance of him being very normal and completely extraordinary. When we think about the situation that the world has been in for the last year or so, and the situation that Charles Darwin found himself in as a work-from-home father and scientist, we can see that he achieved an awful lot in his 40 years at Down House in Kent. What would you sort of say his legacy was as a kind of work-from-home father? It's an extraordinary legacy, isn't it? Because his life's work, you know, his theory of evolution was something that he worked on for almost 20 years and when he published it it really upended the status quo in all sorts of areas of scientific and religious life but at the same time he was living this very conventional life of a victorian country gentleman and i think that's the fascinating thing about visiting down and experiencing those spaces where Darwin really created something that has affected all of our lives, even if we didn't realise it. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll discover what life was like for the family of the custodian of Stonehenge in the 1930s. Thanks for listening. See you next time.